Good morning, everybody. Open your Bible, if you have it, to Matthew chapter 13. We'll be spending most of our time in Matthew 13 and also looking at a few other passages, but you'll be safe to turn there and we'll camp in Matthew 13 for our time this morning. Let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of this moment, the privilege of opening your word, your divine inspired word, which cuts to our heart, reveals intentions and motivations, and ultimately, Father, reveals your great love for us and your forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that our time this morning will accomplish the end that your word settles deep within us that we surrender to your reign and live our lives to your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Every king has a kingdom. For the last few weeks, you have heard us say again and again the two ways to live points. You just walked through them this morning. And you may have begun to notice that there's a little bit of a theme occurring in the two ways to live, and that is that God is our king. And so the question that I have, even as I hear us say that God is our ruler, that God is the king, if God is our king, then what is his kingdom? What are the marks of his kingdom? And as his kingdom is understood, how do we live in accordance to his good rule and his powerful kingdom? Perhaps you've heard the idea of God's kingdom taught in years past, and maybe there's been some misunderstandings about what the kingdom is, but I think it's important for us in our time today to think a bit about God's kingdom in relationship to the present reality that it has upon us as we live. And there's a guiding thought that we're going to operate with in our time in the Word today, and it is this, that the Christian lives with God as his king and with God's kingdom as his purpose. And so I want you to keep that thought in front of you as we engage this text in Matthew chapter 13 today, because it is our goal that as we engage Matthew 13, we are actually properly defining what God's kingdom is and what God's kingdom isn't. So the Christian lives with God as his king and with God's kingdom as his purpose. And so in Matthew chapter 13, we will be asking some questions of this text, and we will see Christ's answer about what the kingdom of God is and isn't. But before we begin to look directly into the words of Christ, I think it might be helpful for me on the very front end to clarify what the kingdom of God is not. Because many of us have heard kingdom sermons in the past and perhaps we have some misunderstandings about what the kingdom is and isn't. And so we need to have a clarification of terms. And so let's begin with three just brief oversight, overviews of what the kingdom of God is not. First, the kingdom of God is not just an experience in the heart. Sometimes we hear that, that the kingdom of God is something that occurs internally within us as the Spirit comes within us. The kingdom of God is not just an experience in the heart. The kingdom of God is actually a visible reality as we as Christians live out the teachings and the desires of King Jesus. There's a very visible reality to the kingdom of God. Secondly, the kingdom of God doesn't just refer to the future. The kingdom of God is not something that we just wait for. There's a present aspect to it. It is occurring now 
It is beginning now and it will ultimately be, be fulfilled, but it's not just something we wait for. We live in it and we experience it currently. And thirdly, the kingdom of God isn't reflected in some kind of social advance or political movement. The kingdom of God isn't a kingdom of any particular political party or social movement. And while there are aspects to certain political movements or social endeavors that reflect some qualities of the kingdom of God, I think it's a very inappropriate understanding of God's kingdom to directly attach his kingdom to the kingdoms of man. And so as we desire to have a biblical understanding of the kingdom of God, it's important to clarify what it is not. And it's important to think biblically. And as we think biblically to define God's kingdom, perhaps the best defini definition that I've come across is by a man of the name of Dick Lucas, who says this about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the authority and power of God as shown through Jesus. It is the power and authority of God shown then in his flesh, shown now in people's lives, and shown in the future as all history comes to its culmination as God has planned. Definition by Dick Lucas. And so let's look at Matthew 13 now. I'll be looking at a few points in Matthew 13 to see if Dick Lucas's definition is in fact what Christ says in Matthew 13. And so we'll be looking at four different stories in Matthew 13 and answering four questions that will guide our time. And the four questions that we will be looking at to find answers to are this. Number one, how does the kingdom start? Number two, what is the evidence of the kingdom of God? Number three, what is the progress of the kingdom of God? And number four, what is the value of the kingdom of God? So four questions that will guide our discussion today. And they'll be up on the screen as we go through so you can take notes as we progress. But Matthew chapter 13 verses 18 through 23 will be the first segment that we'll be looking at to answer the question of how does the kingdom start? Now obviously, we don't start the kingdom. Obviously, the kingdom of God is originated, enlivened, and carried through by the king, by almighty God. But humanly speaking, if you look in Matthew 13, verses 18 through 23, we can see that the kingdom of God begins in the heart of man with a seemingly small thing. In verse 18, we see that it begins with a word. So if you look at verse 18, you see Christ describe and define the parable of the sower to his disciples. And he says to them, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom... So the kingdom begins with a word. There is a word about the kingdom of God that goes out, and that is the seed that is being sown. Something small sent out, no obvious result seen, and maybe nothing seen for quite some time. If you have any sort of green thumb, you are fully aware of the time that it takes between planting the seed and seeing the fruit of that seed grown. And so the word of God goes out and is a seed that is planted. And oftentimes we wonder if it is actually producing anything. In verse 23, we then see Christ tell his disciples that there's a distinction, though, regards to the word and the effectiveness of the word in the heart of the hearer. In verse 23, this small word, he says, goes to the one and understands it. And when that word is understood, 
then fruit is produced in the heart and in the life of the one who hears it. The kingdom is alive within the hearer and overflows out of the hearer. And this all begins with the word about the kingdom. A small seed, a seemingly small word. Some of us maybe enter into this time distinctly right now in this moment here on a Sunday morning. And you come into this room with very little expectation. Perhaps you come into this room because your family invited you, or perhaps you come into this room because you just felt like something was amiss, but you kind of come here because you think it's the right thing to do, and you're not really expecting all that much. You hear good music, you hear prayers that are prayed, and then ultimately you have someone like me standing up front talking for a very, very long time. And our expectations are little. We are so very wrong when we have that mindset in this moment. Let me tell you what is occurring in this very moment. In this very moment on this Sunday morning of October the 16th, what is occurring right now at 9.56 a.m. is that the word about the kingdom of God is being sown into hearts. It's the word that expresses that we are sinful and rebellious people before the holy God. It's the word that tells us that God in his great mercy has pursued us and borne our sins and his son Jesus as our great savior. And it's the word that goes out that says in believing in Christ and in the sufficiency of his work on the cross and in his resurrection and now in his ultimate intercession, we are purified from our sins in him. And this is the word of the kingdom going out. Will you receive it? In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, and it'll be on the screen here, we see the apostle Paul emphasizing the vital nature of the word being proclaimed. When he says, how then will they call on him, him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why is Paul emphasizing the necessity of preaching? Because it is the word of God that does the work of God that produces a people of God. And so even as the kingdom of God begins in the heart of man with the seed of the word sown, so too, as the word settles in your heart, you will now become one who must sow the word. As Christ defines this parable to his disciples, he says that the seed that grows in the heart produces fruit. That is further sowing of the message of the word of the kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, you must be actively sowing as the word is sown within you. The kingdom of God begins in the heart of man with a seed sown and ultimately results in fruit that is grown. And so how does the kingdom of God start in the heart of man? With his word proclaimed. Which then leads us to the second question of our discussion today. The question that we look in this text to find the answer from Jesus Christ. And that second question is this. Well, what is the evidence of the kingdom of God working? And so Christ clarifies that question and he defines what the kingdom of God may be compared to. And he tells us a parable. Let's look at verse 24 of Matthew 13. 
So Christ, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather the wheat? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. The weeds mentioned by Christ in this parable are a type of weed called the bearded darnel. And you can see a picture on the screen behind me that this bearded darnel is a poisonous grain, but early on in the stages of growth, it is nearly indistinguishable from wheat. And it's only as the crops mature that you're able to tell the difference between the wheat crop and the bearded darnel. But at that point, the roots are so entwined with one another that to take one out actually kills the other. And so in this parable, the owner of the field says, just wait, there will be a time when we will separate them. Now, obviously, we are clear on who is who in this. The, the weeds and the wheat have significance. The wheat are the good seed planted by Jesus Christ, those that are truly his, and the weeds are those that are not. And so we see two really important points in this parable that we should probably note. And the first is that the kingdom of God is going to be contested on this earth. The devil is not happy or unaware of when the word of God is being sown. He is not unaware of when the people of God gather. He is not unaware when the things of God are going forward. And so whenever that occurs, the devil, the enemy, is not passive but is actively opposing the kingdom of God. There will be an evil response to the work of God. And often, that evil response will be in the place where the growth of the kingdom is actually occurring. And the second thing we should pay attention to is that there are those who have the appearance of Christianity of being a child of God, but are actually not. I pause on that one because that's a terrifying reality. There are many in this world who by all appearances seem to be the crop planted by the Son of God but in all actuality, are imposters. They seem to have the marks of what we would think a Christian is, but in actuality, they are weeds. And so the question as I, that forms in my mind as I read this parable is, am I truly a member of the kingdom of God, or am I an imposter? Maybe that's the question that you're wondering about your own faith. Well, I think it would be helpful for you and I in this moment to pause in Matthew 13 and turn to 1 John to clarify a bit on what it means to actually be a member of the kingdom of God, to be a Christian. And really what we see in 1 John are three clarifications on what it means to be a Christian. We see a theological clarification, a moral clarification, and an interpersonal one. 
And so let's look at 1 John, beginning in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. We have a theological clarification of what it really means to be a Christian. In 1 John 5, 1, we read that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you have been born of God. This is a theological reality. See, God wants his children to have the assurance that they are a child of God. And this is the first assurance that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is your Savior, that, you, that your salvation is rooted in him alone, not on your works, but in his grace given to you. And so you call Jesus your Savior. You affectionately call him your Lord. You desire to say that name, Jesus. And if that is the case, then you are a child of God. A theological clarification. The second one is a moral one, a moral clarification. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, we read that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, there's a reality for the one who truly is a child of God that there's a growing disdain for sinful behavior in your heart. And on the flip side, if there is a continual practice of sinful behavior, a habitual walking and justifying of your sin that is opposed to the kingdom of God, there should be no confidence that you are a child of God. Now, our hearts are rebellious. We are sinful beings. And even as a child of God, there will be sin that we wrestle with and that we hate and we fall prey to. But the distinctive characteristic between one who is a Christian and one who isn't a Christian is what we do with our sin. Do we continue in it, justifying it? Or do we confess it and come to Christ for cleansing? For 1 John 1, 9, this is a great verse. You should memorize it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So there's a moral aspect to being a Christian. You have a growing disdain for sin. And then there's an interpersonal aspect to being a Christian that is evidence of one who truly is a child of God. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. See, the outworking of the Spirit of God within you is that you actually grow in love for fellow Christians. You actually have an increasing desire to be with them. You actually have an increasing love for them in their own struggles. You have grace that you pour to them. But if you are perpetually hateful towards those who profess the name of Christ, who have the same Spirit of Christ as you think is residing within you, you cannot be assured of the legitimacy of your faith. So there's an interpersonal aspect to this. See, the kingdom of God is evident. We know the kingdom of God is working where we see a deep determination in our hearts to depart from sin. And this leads us now to the third question of our time today. You turn back to Matthew 13, looking at two verses, 31 to 33 of Matthew 13. We want to ask the question, what is the progress of the kingdom of God? How fast does it grow and where does it grow? Because so far we've talked about the start of it, that it starts with the word of God implanted in the heart of a man. And then we see that the kingdom of God is evident as people depart from sin and begin to follow 
the God who has planted that seed in their heart. But now we wonder, how fast do things occur? In Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, we have an answer. And it maybe isn't the answer that we want to hear. Look at verse 31 with me. And so he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that the man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hidden three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The mustard seed and the leaven. Two pictures of tremendously small things that result in gigantic impact. Two elements that seem to not be active only to result in tremendous activity. Tiny things that have an enormous effect and result. The mustard seed. It's the smallest seed known at the time in Palestine, yet this small seed produced the largest tree in relation to the size of the seed. And this slow-growing tree becomes strong. One of the strongest trees there. And it becomes a place, a locale, where notice, he says, birds come and make nests in its branches. The birds of the nations come and make nests in its branches. In short, this tiny mustard seed will grow into a tree that will touch all nations. In the leaven, this microscopic speck that works into the flower and results in an entire batch of flour being impacted, not one part avoiding the impact of the leaven. The leaven small size does not limit the scope of its impact. And so, out of these two illustrations, Jesus corrects our perceptions on how the kingdom should look with regards to its progress. Why does he do this? Well, because we think the kingdom should be loud and overpowering and in your face, and we think that the work should be immediately known. But that's not the case. And that's the point here. When the power and authority of King Jesus is planted in a heart and mind, and when the power and authority of King Jesus settles into a church, and when the power and authority of King Jesus settles into a community, the growth will indeed be terrific. The kingdom of God is moving, whether we are fully aware of it or not. That's the point of this parable. A few weeks ago, Ligonier Ministries released the latest iteration of the State of Theology survey. Maybe some of you have seen that. And this survey asked evangelicals numerous questions regarding their understanding of God. And surprisingly, and not surprisingly, the results were less than encouraging. There's a gross misunderstanding of the things of God as taught us in the Word of God among people who profess to be Christians. And so many pundits obviously came out of the woodwork and expressed that the church is dying, that the church is in great trouble, that the work of God is is in trouble. We must correct course. And there certainly is some truth to how we can engage the things of God better. But do not despair. The kingdom of God is growing. The mustard seed and the leaven are our, our encouragement. And even as we read the state of theology results and maybe feel discouragement in our hearts regarding the state of people and their engagement with God, the progress of God is being realized all around us. 
You think about even in our own midst here at Old North Church. We have numerous young people wrestling with the call of Christ. We have numerous people that are professing faith in Christ for the very first time. We see the leaven working in them. Last week and this week, we see baptisms, men and women, boys and girls, who are desirous to be bold and to stand in front of all of you and profess their faith in Jesus Christ. The mustard seed is sprouting. The growth is slow, but most assuredly, it will be ultimately overwhelming. We have a picture of this in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So lest you lose heart, look at Revelation 7, 9 and read this. After this, I looked, and this is John. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What is the progress of the kingdom of God? A numberless multitude. The kingdom is working. In 1809, Adoniram Judson made a, a declaration that his one purpose in life would be to plan his life to please the Lord. And soon after, he became burdened to consider the unknown path of being a missionary to a foreign land. And so in 1812, Adoniram and his bride of seven days, Anne, they became the first missionary sent from the United States to a foreign land. So they set sail to head to India. Only they didn't make it to India. They ended up in Burma. Now, in Burma, there was not one Christian when they landed. And they were there by themselves, a newlywed couple, no friends, no communications home. And soon after they arrived, they lost their first child. And so depression settled in for Anne and for Adoniram, and they said that nothing of value was happening in this wretched place. And so for six years they were there, working, attempting to translate the Bible into the native language. In six years they were working with no fruit. Until June 27, 1819, when Judson baptized the first believer, Mong Nao. Slowly one convert became two, then three, then six, and then 18. But then... Adoniram was arrested by the government and charged with being a British spy and was imprisoned for two years. And when he was released, all the work that had been done previously had disbanded. He returned to work, continued to translate the Bible, in 1834 finished that translation, continued to attempt to transfer the information of the Bible into the hearts of people that were there in Burma. And the work was slow and Fruitless at times and mixed in with numerous tragedies. He lost his wife, Anne, and another wife, and he lost three children. And Adoniram struggled with depression and the feeling that the work was a waste of his years. And he even went and sat in a hut in the middle of the jungle in the midst of his depression. But he continued on, finally, and pressed on and ultimately passed in 1850 never making his way back to home, living in Burma, working what he thought was a fruitless work. 
After 38 seemingly fruitless years of ministry, in which Judson felt as if nothing was happening for the kingdom of God, listen to what the mustard seed did. The mustard seed sprouted, and at the time of his death, it was estimated that 210,000 men and women had become followers of Christ. Today, there are six to seven million people in Burma who profess faith in Christ, who trace their spiritual lineage to the work of Judson. The progress of the kingdom far surpasses our expectations, doesn't it? And so, so far in our time, we've answered three questions. We've seen that the kingdom of God begins with a word, is evident by deliberate rejection of sin and following King Jesus and is progressing at a much greater rate than we can imagine. And that leaves us with the last question. What is the value of this kingdom? Two verses, Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. Short little parable that Christ tells. Verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Both parables are told to highlight the, event, the immense value of the kingdom of God, in one parable, the kingdom is stumbled upon, while in the other kingdom it's searched for. However, the kingdom is found. The point is that we should be rid of lesser things in order to give all to the kingdom of God. I ask a lot of questions when I read the Bible. And my question here is, why is the kingdom so valuable? Well, the value of the kingdom is that now you are ruled and reigned by God the king of this kingdom. And what do we know about the king of this kingdom? The king of this kingdom, his desire is to save you and me from the destruction of sin and to enjoy Christ forever. That's a pretty good king. You see, the value of the kingdom of God is found in what we are saved from and what we are saved to. You see, we are saved from death and for life. We are saved from shame and for glory. We are saved from slavery and for freedom. We are saved from sin and for following our Savior. We are saved from the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God is valuable because it means a new life, a new identity, and a new and never-ending kingdom with a good and a holy king. And this is evident as we read in other passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, writing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I wonder if this is your relationship to the kingdom of God. It's a happy trade-off, isn't it? A joyful trading of the things of this world, those things that are lesser pursuits that take up our time and talents, sacrificing those things for the joy of living in and for the eternal kingdom of the God who pursues you graciously. Another missionary says this. This missionary's name is Jim Elliott who was martyred for the kingdom of God in 1956 in Peru, he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
I pray that we would hold very loosely to the things of this world in relation to the reign of God. May we be quick to let go of the lesser and temporary, even as we tighten our grip on the God who has redeemed us and graciously calls us to live in his kingdom. Christ answered four questions about the kingdom of God and the life that we live. And so here's the picture that we end on. The Christian lives in and pronounces the kingdom of God when the victory of Christ over sin and death is pronounced. Righteousness is pursued over sin. There is faithful trust in the working of God rather than the schemes of man. And the purpose of the day is the glory of God over the glory of self. My prayer is that we are a kingdom people. That we are a people who live with God as our king and God's kingdom as our purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment in your word. May the seed of your word soften our hearts, causing us to understand the kingdom of God and turning us to repentance. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.